Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio. Organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis. A solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. NASDAQ Solovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at nasdaq.com slash solutions slash Solovis. That's nasdaq.com slash solutions slash S-O-L-O-V-I-S. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Donna Snyder speaks with Bruce Martin. Donna was a past guest on the show when named Institutional Investor's top CIO of the future while at the Kresge Foundation. Sure enough, today she serves as the Chief Investment Officer at Hackensack Meridian Health. Bruce founded Still Lake Capital to invest in a concentrated portfolio of equities after spending 25 years in the credit markets, including 17 at Angelo Gordon. Five years later, he's still at it, managing his capital alongside that of some friends. Donna was a longtime investor with Bruce and Angelo Gordon and has watched his progress carefully in his new venture. Before she dives in with Bruce, we chat about why she stayed connected to him through his transition and when she might be ready to take the leap to back Still Lake. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that we're enrolling the first cohort of Capital Allocators University, a live online course that starts on September 21st. Rahul Mudgal and I put together a course to help train investment professionals on the skills they need to succeed at the most senior levels of their organizations, but that aren't typically taught in investment curriculum. We'll be joined by an all-star cast of past guests on the show to help you learn foundational skills like time management and public speaking, and value-added ones like decision-making and networking. Hop on the website and click University in the menu to learn more. Donna, great to see you. Ted, good to see you. So I know from this conversation, you had a long relationship with Bruce in his days at Angelo Gordon, and 
I'd love to just start talking about how do you think about someone who was an institutional manager and now is doing something on his own that's a completely different strategy in some sense? Great question and probably something I spend a lot of time on. What interests me most about Bruce is less about the product that he's managing and more the way he thinks. I love to surround myself with people who are smarter than me, people who think differently than me. And even when he was at Angelo Gordon, the thing that attracted me to him when I was investing with him in CLO space was his willingness to be different from everybody else. I mean, we all know in our industry, like FOMO is real. And he is one person who nobody would ever be able to accuse of being swayed by FOMO. And when he left Angelo Gordon to do this pretty different thing, there was no concern. Like, no, I'm going to be out of the information flow of New York City. I'm going to be out of the information flow of a big institution. I'm going to be out of the information flow of all the broker dealers. It was just the opposite. He was like, I'm finally going to be able to go and think clearly without all the noise. And that is what made me stay in touch with him at Kresge, even after he left Angelo Gordon. And we spent some time evaluating the opportunity there. He was just getting set up and just getting started. And here at Hackensack Meridian, I've just personally maintained a relationship with Bruce since he left. But then when I started here at Hackensack Meridian, I clearly reached out and let him know what I was doing and explained kind of what I've inherited and how I'm thinking about building the portfolio for the long term. And now with three plus years under his belt, very curious to learn how has it been? I think we even, Bruce and I talked in the podcast, like timing couldn't have been worse. Launching a value shop in the last five years is bad timing. And so just to get a check on his mental, like, where are you? And he talked pretty openly about that in the podcast and also in a recent letter that he wrote, just really questioning a lot of different things. And so checking in with him, watching what he's building, making sure he's still as convicted in what he's doing as he was on day one, that's what I've been monitoring closely. There's a non-institutional element to what he's doing, which is both endearing and in some instances in an institution a risk. How are you thinking about underwriting that and then how you might go about pulling the trigger? That's a great question. So as an individual, like you look at his education, his career background, he's clearly grown up in institutional firms and he knows what it means to be institutional. I want him to develop into that at Still Lake. That takes a lot of investment. You know what it takes to invest in back office and all the systems and support that you'll need. That's going to be critical, I think, to gain institutional money. And it's something that I'm watching. I haven't had that specific conversation with him. Like, all right, Bruce, if you really want institutional checks, let's go through this kind of a list. Because that I view as a very easy to solve problem. No institution is going to invest if they don't believe in the person and the process and the portfolio. So once we get that right, then we can say, okay, are we going to invest in all the back office that supports this? That's the much easier one to solve than the person. And I'm a big fan of Bruce. And so continuing to stay in touch with them and watch how he's investing the portfolio right now is where I'm doing the diligence right now. And then if we move forward on an investment, we would have to have that conversation of the institutional platform, operations platform. Well, super interesting, Donna. Thanks. Bruce, it is so great to have this opportunity to chat with you today. Thank you for agreeing to join me. Would love to start with your background. 
how you got into investing. You and I met a long time ago, bonded over our backgrounds in actuarial math, but there's so much more to your story. Walk us through how you ended up being an investor. It's funny when people ask me that, I always never know exactly how far to go back. And then people take a breath when I'm like, when I was a child, but it's sort of factually true. As a kid, money was always a big topic in our family. When we would drive down to Florida, stay at our grandparents, early bird specials. So I always knew money was a thing that everybody wanted. Nobody had enough of, at least in my family. We all lived a good, happy life in childhood, but money was just always a big topic. So it fascinated me. I had a grandfather who had gotten divorced and married a wealthy widow and supposedly lost all the money. And I never understood that. And I really interviewed him about it. And I said, mental note, that's not going to happen to me. I really got to understand money. I had an uncle who used to take me to garage sales all the time. That's how I furnished my first house. And the reason it's relevant, watching him haggle, I think I saw a table on sale for whatever, $120. I'm like, oh, I want that. And he'd push me backwards and said, we'll give you $30 for the table. And I looked up at him and in my head, I'm like, wait, you can do that? And so <laughs> that also fascinated me. The fact that not everything is what it seems. You can negotiate, you can have a price you want. So with all of that, I go to college and a footnote, which may end up being relevant or not later in some of the discussion. So my father passes away my senior year in high school, sort of suddenly, got sick and went quickly. So I was going to go to West Point, which is another total fluke, has nothing to do with a military background or anything. I just thought, wow, great education. I'll get in shape. I'll serve the country. This will be cool. I'd gone there for basketball camp. Father passes away. I decide not to go. I go to a very liberal arts college and I was going to major in philosophy because I loved the philosophy classes I was taking. And I had a cousin who worked on Wall Street, was the only one in my family who said, well, don't do that. What are you going to do with a philosophy major? Don't you have math skills? Because I had taken some math in high school that I got college credit for. I said, yeah. He said, well, why don't you be a math major? He goes, people will at least think you're smart and then you'll have much more opportunities. You can do whatever you want as you figure yourself out over the next four years. So I do that. My first job is as an actuary, which I think is near and dear to your heart. I think we share that background. And I kind of knew before I did it, I was not going to like it, but it paid well. I had a very close friend from college who was a year older who was doing it. It got me down around Wall Street area. I had a serious girlfriend at the time who is now my wife. I said, give me a year. Let me see what I'm doing. Did the actuary, went to business school. Still no intention of working on Wall Street. Thought I'd be a financial analyst at a company. I really enjoyed my investing class. I'm still close with my professor from all the way back then. I graduated in 93. And I said, all right, you know what? I'll give myself six months to try and find a job on Wall Street. My mother had remarried. Her husband was a Harvard Business School grad who had all these friends in very serious jobs at Goldman Sachs and Harvard Management. I met with each of them, but they sort of nudge me to the side. My MBA was at Northeastern and they're used to hiring Ivy League exclusively. And, you know, okay, maybe we could do something on the money desk, Bruce. All of that was irritating, but helped kind of formulate sort of like that Marine commercial. You hammer the metal long enough, it gets stronger. So I was getting pretty fired up to do this. Total fluke. I got a job from a professor at Northeastern who also managed money at John Hancock Mutual Funds mentioned to the professor that I really liked that he was looking for someone that they could teach because they had just trained an investment grade bond analyst who now wanted to go to the equity side. And they said he has to train a young guy and then he can move on. 
So they brought me in and I took the job. And the guy who was training me, he had worked at the Fed. So my first job was analyzing investment grade bonds focused on the finance industry, the investment grade bonds of banks, later insurance companies and finance companies, and everything grew out of that. But it was funny, the boss who hired me looked at myself, my friend Tom, who I'm still close with, and said, look, Bruce, I don't expect you to add value for two years. And then when you do, Tom can move on and do equities. And then he left and Tom looked at me and said, please don't take two years. I really want to go do equities. And so it took me six months and then they let Tom move on. And I, I really just read annual reports front to back for the six months. I would read at that time it was Chase. It wasn't JP Morgan Chase. And then I would read Bank America and there's tons of banks that don't even exist today. And from each one, I would learn the next. And he taught me the camel approach to analyze, which they teach with the Fed, which is capital, asset, quality, management, liquidity, earnings. I went to conferences. I talked to analysts. So I understood the competitive analysis nature of, okay, here's Bank America. Okay, here's Chase. Okay, here's this. And lining up all these banks, seeing where they're trading at a spread over treasuries. That was my original training ground. And I spent three years at John Hancock Mutual Funds. And after the first year and a half, two years, I picked up two high yield industries, supermarkets and home builders, home builders being a little related to finance, supermarkets viewed as one of the easier sectors to get your head around. I really got a taste for that. I really enjoyed the high yield. Again, at a conference, an up and coming portfolio manager at another company, Eaton Vance, heard me asking questions, spoke to me, sat next to me on the plane home, and basically offered me a job to just be a high yield analyst. So I left John Hancock after three years. I told them why, and my boss said, look, we've trained you to be high grade. I don't want you to just do high yield. I said, believe me, I understand that I'm appreciative, but I really, I want to learn more industries, more sectors, and high yield is just way more fascinating to me. Eaton Vance had a pure high yield fund. And to me, I was like, I can spend all my time doing high yield. I go to Eaton Vance, I pick up more industries. So now I'm covering paper, packaging, auto parts suppliers. I was only at Eaton Vance six months because two months after I got there, there was a head of research at Putnam, a guy named Steve Peacher, who's now at Sun Life building a very big business. And he, again, reached out to me. He's like, I didn't know you were leaving Hancock. I want you over here. I'm like, well, I just went to Eaton Vance. He goes, you got to come here. And then I had a friend who was a sales guy at Lehman Brothers in Boston. who's like, you have to go to Putnam. I'm like, why? He goes, Bruce, when companies come to Boston that want to raise a high yield bond issue. They'll have a lunch at the Meridian Hotel and 30 accounts will show up and sit at all these tables and listen. But Putnam won't go to that lunch and Fidelity won't go to that lunch because the company is going to go to your office and you're going to sit down at a table just one-on-one and you're going to get to know the CEO, the CFO. You're going to have such better meetings. It's going to be so great for your own brain, your own career. So I felt bad. I had a mentor. I always tell young kids, find mentors, a guy older than me. And I was racking my brain going, I spoke to Putnam for four months. So now it's six months I'm at Eaton Vance. And I said, how can I leave? I just got here. And my mentor said, look, once in a career, you can do something like that. You looked under the hood, even though you like Eaton Vance, it's a good career move. And so I did it. Eaton Vance was upset. Like he told me, there was an older guy there who told me I'd never work in that town again. When I first told him, he was screaming at me. I told him I'd give him three weeks. At the end of my third week, he came in and said, if it doesn't work out at Putnam, please come back. I tell that story to younger kids also too, because part of my whole 
I don't know if philosophy is the right word, but there's a lot of acting that goes on in life. And there's a big part of life that you have to recognize is just a game. Don't take it personally. If I could play you back the film of the vitriol with which he was screaming at me when I told him I was leaving to how docile he was when he came back in three weeks later. And I was a young kid and I'm a sensitive person. I was upset and I laughed when I left and said, I can't believe he just said the opposite from you'll never work in this, you know. So again, all good life lessons and good lessons when you talk to CEOs and CEOs. People are putting on shows and you have to be able to read through the BS. So I did a couple of years at Putnam. Putnam was a very difficult place, but it was big. I mean, Eaton Vance, I think, had 600 million in high yield when I got there. I think Putnam had 18 billion and the whole firm of Putnam had 400 billion at the time. It was a machine and it was a very impressive company. So I decided to leave Putnam two years later. So now I had been working for six years in the Boston area, come up through high grade, through high yield, picked up multiple industries, probably covered more than half the industries out there, if not three quarters. And my wife is pregnant with our second child, telling me she's feeling a little isolated. I can see Bruce and you, you're getting itchy. So the year was 99. And I forget, I don't know if it was the Russian debt crisis or long-term capital, something blew the markets up that year. And the only reason it was relevant for me that I know it is when we got paid that year at Putnam, and this is what made me leave, in addition to it being difficult, we did all these 360 reviews and they told me I was doing this incredibly great job but nobody's getting paid this year because of what happened with earnings. And that just didn't compute with me. I said, I'm not working this hard to be beholden to something of that magnitude. It just doesn't make sense to me. And so again, my wife saw my wheels turning and I knew a guy, actually Doug Ostrober, who's at Owl Rock now has built another incredible business who was at GSO. He was my DLJ sales guy when I was at Putnam. And he had told me in some negotiation I was having, he said, you strike me as a guy who, really cares about what he does, who spends a lot of time and energy. And if you ever want to make a move, let me know. I let him know. He introduced me to Angelo Gordon. I had never heard of Angelo Gordon again. At that time, Angelo Gordon had $3 billion under management against Putnam's $400 billion. I flew to New York. I met with Jeff Aronson, who now is at Centerbridge. And a week later, I took the job. In that week, I made a bunch of phone calls. And I said to my wife, it's small, but it sounds like it's a really interesting firm. It sounds like it's does some really, I think I'm going to learn a ton again. thought I knew everything after six years and I was open. Don't we all? (laughs) So I go to Angel Gordon and I start learning leverage loans. He had just started a CLO business. So now from high yield bonds, I would say if you're doing high yield bonds, you sort of have a black belt in credit. And so to do loans in my brain was much easier. The wrinkle being we then took those loans and put 10 turns of leverage on it in a CLO. So the stakes of being wrong were just 10 times higher. And again, that appealed to me. And then I learned how to deal with stress and distress credits. If something got into trouble, Angela Gordon, their biggest business at that time was distressed. So they knew how to do workouts. So again, my learning curve went massively up. In fact, when I told the guy who hired me at Putnam that I was leaving, Steve Peacher, he was like, where? And I said, Angelo Gordon. He goes, who the heck is Angelo Gordon? And somebody whispers in his ear who's in the meeting. And he goes, oh, I said, what did he say? He goes, well, those are the guys who completely cleaned our clock on Trump. And Angelo Gordon took it because they had the secured debt. Putnam lost it because they had the high yield bonds. And Angelo Gordon ended up with the company. So again, I go to Angelo. I'm there. So that's in 99. Six years later, Jeff Aronson leaves. And I didn't think 
Angelo Gordon after Jeff Aronson was going to be a thing. He was probably the smartest guy I ever worked for. But of course, I was wrong again. And I got handed co-management of the CLO business with a partner at the time. So this is 2005. And I stayed for another 11 years. And from the CLO business, we raised a bunch of CLOs. We went through the 2008-9 crisis. And then we raised some credit opportunity funds. I think for me at my peak, I think I was running 13 different funds, CLOs, separate accounts, a levered credit fund, an unlevered credit fund, totaled about 13 different vehicles. And then I started a direct lending business before I left. And hitting rewind all the way back to when I started at Hancock, there was a guy I was interviewing with, Arthur Calavertinos. He was a, he's still a weird guy. And I think he would smile if he heard me say that, but it was a quirky interview. So he was boring me. So I looked behind him. I go, what is that life-size cutout behind you? And he looks, he goes, Warren Buffett. And I'm like, who's Warren Buffett? And now his face like almost turned white. <laughs> and he hands me a Berkshire annual report. And literally, he's like, get out of my office and go read this. And that night, I was reading it in bed. And I'm elbowing my wife going, this is what I want to do. And she's like, what? I go, I want to manage money the way Buffett is managing money. I want to have a big enough pool of capital. I don't have to raise capital. And then I would ask people and, and people who have known me from that beginning time. When I left Angelo Gordon five years ago to do Still Lake, which is what I'm doing now, People who have known me that whole period of time sort of laughed and like, Bruce, you have been talking about this from before you even started. This is what you wanted to do. I'd ask people like, how much money do I need? That's a personal question. That's different for everybody. I mean, I had four kids, so I needed more money than I thought at the beginning. But once I got it, I knew two years before I left Angel Gordon, I was leaving. And I was questioning whether I should do what format, what style, and boiling it all down to, I'm talking to you from my office, a mile from my house where I work for myself, by myself, at Still Lake Capital. And I've been doing that for five years now. And the reality of the dream has matched. Dreaming about something for 23 years, I was nervous. It wasn't going to all line up, but it has. And so here I am today with a portfolio of 25-ish securities, mostly stocks. And that vacillates between 20 and 30. I've got about eight outside investors, or I refer to them as partners. It's about 250 people who get my writings every quarter and other musings I send out. You glossed over what I thought was one of the most pivotal points of your career. I didn't meet you until Angelo Gordon. We invested together in the CLO strategy. You were one of the most transparent CLO managers that I met with when I was doing my diligence. You were very clear what to expect from a portfolio that you managed and what not to expect, the amount of risk you took, all of those things. We talked about your direct lending business when you started that at Angelo Gordon. And Angelo Gordon was a manager that wasn't necessarily a typical manager for my prior employer to invest with, but you were a unique individual at that organization that we identified and backed. And so when the time came for you to leave and start Still Lake, of course, it was difficult for us because we wanted to invest with you, but then you left to form Still Lake. And when you explained to me what you were doing at Still Lake, I remember saying, you've been a Bond guy all of your life. And I didn't know as much about the Warren Buffett history for you until I started reading your Still Lake letters. And you write and you talk a lot about what you've learned from him. So take us a little deeper into the decision to form Still Lake after being a Bond guy for so long. And what it's probably more around your philosophy of investing that made you say, I think I can go compound capital regardless of what instrument, what security I'm using. It might not be a bond. It might be an equity, but 
this is the right next step for me. I'm smiling from the moment you asked the question, which is, how did you go from being a bond guy to an equity guy? And I would answer by, I was never a bond guy. I was always an equity guy. From the moment I read that Berkshire Hathaway report in 93, and I think I have read everything written about Warren Buffett, everything written by Warren Buffett, every letter, every book. So I basically took that and said, how do I apply that in bond world? And the way I applied it, and you've probably, you may remember when I say this, because I would, when you say transparent, this is what I explained to everyone. I'm like, look, the first thing we do when I was a portfolio manager, when I was an analyst, we value the business. Okay. So if a company's coming to raise debt and they want to raise a leveraged loan, we have to be able to value the business. So I've been valuing the business since the beginning. Now, typically that's what an equity guy will do. And if he can buy the business at a discount and thinks it'll compound, he wants to own it. I wasn't an equity guy because I had a job in bonds and was paying well. So I stayed with it. So I said, okay, the business is worth a billion and the loan is 500 million. So I'm covered two to one. So I was looking at the world the opposite, which is not how much can the company grow, but how much can the company shrink? How much trouble could it get in without me being damaged? And then if I concluded there is no way we're ever going to lose money on this loan from a permanent capital loss, then the question was, am I getting paid enough for it? And so we would fill a CLO with 100 loans. I had five analysts, they would each cover 20. And the question was always the same. What is this business worth for every one of those hundred? How far below that are we lending? Are we really secured? How much are we getting paid? Got it. So the pivot to Still Lake for me wasn't a mental pivot in terms of how I'm doing what I'm doing. It finally freed me to apply those skills to the equity world, which is much bigger than the leveraged credit world in terms of number of things you can look at and much bigger in terms of money you can make. The give up is volatility. You're going to get a lot more volatility in the equity world than you're going to get in the credit world. But one of the things you really get is liquidity. But I'm going a different tangent. So to me, the decision to go do Still Lake, that wasn't a leap. The question was, what do you want to do, Bruce? Do you want to go inside of a big company again? Do you want to go inside of a little company again? Do you want to go on the road for a year or two and raise money? And so I pushed myself to get enough personal capital and I can tell you, like at, at Angelo Gordon, I had a smaller house in a lesser town than all of the analysts who worked for me for 20 years because I was stockpiling all that money and investing it so I could grow it so one day I could do what I did. So to be able to drive to your own office, pull the shades, sit in quiet solitude, make as few decisions as possible and just read, that's always been my dream. It was an easy pivot. I just put up with all the noise for 23 years to get to the dream. I remember calling you six months after you left and a year after you left. And I was just like, do you miss it? Do you miss coming into the city every day? Do you miss having a team to debate with? I would love just to hear your reflections on that. I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings by telling them that I didn't miss that. The woman who took my job when I left, Maureen Deleva, I had known Maureen for many years before asking her if she wanted to come to the buy side. She called me when I left and said, Bruce, I'm worried about you. I said, why? She goes, you're going to miss people. You're a people person. You love coming in. I go, Maureen, it's funny you say that to me. And this is very selfish. If I come into the office, I know what I want to do. And I just want to do it. If I want to take a break in the middle of the day and start chatting with people, I'm happy to do that and I enjoy that and I still do that now. I go for long walks in the middle of every day and I either call someone or listen to a podcast. But I don't want to be distracted by everyone else's desire to talk it. 
first thing in the morning or any time in the morning. It's why I don't work from home, even though I could. I'm a mile away. Like when I'm in the zone, I love being in the zone and I love having my private time to focus and focus. And I can't if I'm being distracted. So I do love people. I love chatting with people. I love bouncing ideas, but I want to do it on my time. There was no way to do that in an environment like that. And Angela Gordon was one of the calmest environments you'll find on Wall Street. But this is, again, a different conversation, which boils down to why do you work by yourself as opposed to have one, two, three, six analysts? So I don't miss that. Commuting, no. But it's not just commuting. I still do this guest lecture once a semester, and I did it a couple of weeks ago. There's a list of things I advise students on, and one of them I always say, always think, and I tell my kids this, always sort of think five years down the road. Whatever you're doing, you don't have to know what you're going to be doing in five years, but have a vision in your head of roughly what you'd like to be doing and make sure that what you're doing today is putting you in that direction. Don't just aimlessly do something. Don't not think forward. Be open-minded. Be open to pivoting, but have that vision. So this part may sound a little crazy, but I had a spiral notebook that I always kept with me, and I always had an active list of what my next thing would be and what are the most important things. And I can tell you two of the most important things on the list was no commute and the ability to wear jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> and again, you're laughing and it sounds silly, but the quality of life, and I don't mean that in a casual way, the ability for me to think clearly, is to not have to get up on a train schedule. And I used to call it, you know, if you've seen the movie Rain Man, you get Rain Man brain. Like I'll be on the 710. I'll definitely be on the, if I don't get the 710, I'll be the 712. <laughs> 712 is not an express. 718 is definitely a local. So maybe the 720, it rattles me. Like some people love that. And you get into the game, but you don't realize you're doing it until you're not doing it. And then it's like a fan going off in the room that you didn't even know was on. You're like, wow, it's just quiet. But I find the same thing with clothes. If I can throw on jeans and a t-shirt, okay, I'm not thinking about the suit and the shirt. and the. So it's all back to, I just want to invest and as few distractions as possible, the better. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,025 and one. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So let's use that as a pivot into what you're doing at Still Lake. So many changes, right? From a, a large company with a commute into the city with tons of analysts working for you. And even the portfolio. You mentioned with CLOs, you would bundle together 100 different loans, highly diversified. Today at Still Lake, a mile from your house, mostly your own money with some outside investors. You're 100% aligned. I, I don't think I've ever met a GP who's more aligned than what you are. 
a very concentrated portfolio relative to what you had in the CLO space. So in Lone Land, we were pretty concentrated. To have a platform, I think at our peak, we were, I don't know, five or six billion when I was managing over those 10 years, all the different funds. Most managers of loans, I would say, had several hundred loans. I didn't believe in that. I didn't want that. But in credit, you're never going to be able to make up for your losses. You can do cool things. You can buy a loan at 97 or 95 or nine, or occasionally cheaper in really big dislocations. Most loans, you'll get a slight discount to par and you maybe you'll make a point and you're spread or maybe you get pre... But generally speaking, you're earning your coupon. If you're lucky, another 100 or 200 basis points. So you cannot make up for losses. When you, you remember this, and not to digress too much, but when you model a CLO, you assume 2% of your loans will go bad and you'll have 20% loss or 80% recovery on those loans. So keep it simple. You make 100 loans, two go bad, and wow, you got 80 cents back. And that models out to a good 20% return on a well-structured CLO. Probably not anymore, but back then. So I wanted to be as concentrated as we could be. And I always told people, and I think you hinted at this earlier, the reason we didn't raise $30 billion in credit, and this was a speech I got when I first got to Angela Gordon that I repeated to people, we wanted to be excellent. That was way more important than being huge. And to be excellent in credit, it's not a very liquid market. So I wanted to own only the best names that we thought, as far as solidity coupled with spread, I wanted to get paid the most for the best names. And I wanted our analysts to be so focused on them that if there was any whiff of trouble, we would be one of the first ones to sell them. So we didn't get stuck because when loans fall, they don't drift down. Usually they just collapse. They go from 100 to 80. And if you didn't see that coming, that's a problem. And it can go lower and lower from there. So and I learned that at Putnam. When I was at Putnam, each analyst covered 60 names, six zero. And we had a lot of analysts. So we had hundreds of names because it was a $18 billion high yield portfolio. As an analyst, I used to say, I cover 60 names, 20 I know really well and cover close. 40, yeah, they're kind of higher quality. I don't pay close attention. So it's almost like the index approach, right? People solve it that way. It's just not appealing to me. So in equities, after reading all the Buffett stuff, two books I read that pretty much put me over the hump and convinced me that I'm going to do this alone and do it this way. One was The Dondo Investor by Manish Pabrai, and the other was The Education of a Value Investor by Guy Spear. They happen to be good friends. Those two guys run their own funds, and I think they have maybe 10 positions. I think Guy may have may have as many as 20, but but they're way more concentrated. I thought that's what I was going to do. When I started Still Lake, I thought that, and then everybody's got to find their own comfort zone. And I just concluded 10 positions, 10% each is not comfortable for me. I just know for so many reasons, and I, I mentioned my dad dying when I was younger, stuff happens. Stuff comes out of nowhere, stuff you didn't see, you didn't plan for. The company that had the cyanide scare in Tylenol 30 years ago, but you could have a great investment in a pharma company. And then all of a sudden somebody breaks in and injects and everything's pulled and the stock drops 30, 40%. And you don't know if it's an internal systems problem. I've just seen those kinds of things happen so many times. The fraud era with Enron and Adelphi, et cetera. I don't think a lot of value guys own that. I remember looking at those back then. The financials were too opaque. But the point is, if I'm going to get blown up on an investment, it's okay if it's 4% of the portfolio, 5%. I don't want it to be 10. 
I don't have any hard rules. I have guidelines, but generally speaking, if I have a position that's getting over seven, seven and a half percent, that's starting to get uncomfortable for me, unless it's the biggest no-brainer on the planet. I don't consider 25 to 30 names to be concentrated, certainly more concentrated than your normal fund, but to me, not as concentrated as others who do what I do. It's just, it's my sweet spot. It just feels right. So talk about what you are trying to do. It's still like, just like you were so transparent when I first met you, when we talked about CLOs, when you launched Still Lake and we talked about what are you trying to beat? Are you trying to be a small cap, a large cap, a growth, a value? You actually explained it to me. You're like, I don't know what I'm trying to be. I'm trying to compound my capital consistently. I'm trying to be a guy who compounds. I use 10% for a couple of reasons. I think it shows you my mindset, which is I'm not trying to shoot the moon. If we end up compounding it more than 10%, no one's going to be more thrilled than me. 80% of the fund, it's a vast preponderance of my family's net worth. But I align it with the risks I'm taking. If I compound it 10%, we'll double our money every seven years. So if I end up doing this for 20 years, I'll double my money three times. I plan on doing it for more than 20 years. So that's sort of my barometer. And I wrote in my first letters, I'll tell you what the S&P 500 is doing. That's what I'll compare it to in our sheets. And the way I phrased it was just so you know what the weather is like outside. Is it sunny and we're up 15, but guess what? The market's up 25. You should know that. Over rolling seven-year periods, the goal is to compound at 10%. So that's my goal. I have heard other investors say, I'll, I'll digress for a moment, like, you have to beat the index. If you're not beating the index, what's the point of doing it? And that just doesn't resonate with me. If I was in the index and the index was up, pick a number, 30%, 40%, and I could see what was in the index. And if I saw stocks like Tesla or Netflix or things that had these valuations that made absolutely no sense to me, I wouldn't own them. I don't want to own them. I won't stay in it. And so the point to me isn't, did you beat the index? The point to me is, how comfortable are you overall? Like I sleep extremely well at night. I happen to love what I do, so I would do it anyway. But it's not even the control freak in me. I've just been studying this for 25 years. I'm not going to hand my money off to a blind index that may be about to go off a cliff. So I heard a value investor say a couple of years ago, which I'm now finally really experiencing the upside of, which is delightful which is underperformance is the price you pay for future outperformance, right? So when I say I underperform the index for a while, I don't know if you play gin rummy, Buffett says you can learn a lot about people from the way they play cards. He's referring to bridge and I, I haven't picked up bridge yet, but I love playing gin, but I'm the kind of gin rummy player who I'm more likely to hoard a really good stacked hand and then just dump it all down at you <laughs> and it'll look like I have nothing. Like I used to play with my grandmother and every time she got something, she threw it down and I'm more trying to starve you out and then destroy you. You often looked at the numbers and said, wow, poor Bruce, he started this at the wrong time. I will look back, I am sure, and I've heard other value investors say this who started around 2008. You're almost better off starting in a really trying period and a really testing period. Because if you stick with it through that, the stuff you learn from that, I feel like I can just about guarantee you that the next time we get a dip like that, it will be less mentally taxing. I self-reinforce. I was going back and looking through Berkshire and reports, and I was telling my investors, if you look at Berkshire's stock performance, there's been, I think, four or five times in the last 50 years where the stock collapsed 
as much as 40%. And Buffett said it two years ago, I think in his letter, he goes, about once every 10 years, you're going to suffer a 30 to 50% drop. If you're not mentally prepared to handle it, you're in the wrong game. And so I can take a big distance from that kind of perspective and say, I got this. I don't know if that was your quote or somebody else's, the underperformance is the price you pay for future outperformance. That's a great opportunity to talk about what you see right now as opportunities and risks in the market. I really have big thoughts about the market. I'm always security specific. Someone will ask me, what are the opportunities? I'll say, look, here's a couple of names I own. Here's why. And I almost never tell anybody that anymore because inevitably, if somebody's like, give me your single best idea. And in fact, a friend of mine, my mentor, he did that three years ago. That year, my fund was up 20%. The name I gave him, I think it was down 50. And so <laughs> I tell people, they're like, what should I invest in? I'm like, just invest in Still Lake because any individual thing I tell you, it's going to be bad for me and you. I'm like, I just don't want to do it. And so the risks are more obvious. I'll make it very simple. I try to buy businesses, non-financial, regular businesses at 10 times EBITDA less CapEx. I have found... And I've read other pieces, and I'd love to find this one piece that he's like, there's seven ways to look at a company. We use all these seven, but when we look back, 10 times EBITDA less CapEx has really been the barometer, which basically is 10 times EBIT, but it's unlevered cash flow. It, it almost equates, if you think about a company with no debt and you're paying 10 times EBIT, if you assume a 30% tax rate, it's like you're paying a 14 PE, which is cheap. So if you have a good business and it's stable to slightly growing, you're going to make good money if you pay 10 times EBITDA less CapEx. If you can pay less than that, you're going to make great money. If it's a really good business growing faster, you can pay a little more than that. It's all okay. So if you look at a business, I've talked a fair bit about Tesla to people. I had a friend of mine said, don't I have to own it? I'm like, look, Vitaly Katzenelson, who's written a few books, who I really like reading his stuff. He wrote like a, I don't know, 50 page, I'm looking around my desk for it, pamphlet on Tesla because he really wanted to understand it. And in 50 pages, he came to the same conclusion that I came to just really looking at its financials, which is I th- wherever Tesla is now, 500 plus a share, 600. It's probably in our brains, I'd pay 40 or 50 bucks a share. But as a multiple of the cash flow, that's to me where the risks are. When you're paying astronomical prices, you're just speculating that a business is going to grow into that, right? Nobody knows that. Amazon's amazing. I mean, I was at Putnam back in 97 and 99, that's when the dot-com era really took off. And a guy was running an equity fund and he was a value guy. And he and I were talking and he bought Amazon. I'm like, how could you buy it at that valuation? Which is ironic, right? Because it's so much higher today. But he said, I have no choice. It's this much of the index. I compete with the index. I have to. I found that very distasteful, but I understood it. But the point of that is, of all those dot-coms, Amazon made it. But people look back and talk about it like it was almost easy. Like, oh, you just buy these great companies and you sit back. I'm like, no, there was tons of companies that went bankrupt or that never lived even close to those valuations. If you're paying a trillion dollars or $500 billion for a business that either has no or little cash flow, it just doesn't make any sense. That's where the risk is to me. So if you have to know what you own and how excessively valued it is. So I'll take a a bigger, more far away view, which is, What I don't know about the market, if you want to talk about the market, how many participants in the market own a bunch of Bitcoin? How many are levered on that bet? How much own Tesla? How many are levered on that bet? Because if these things collapse, 
is it going to take the market down with it or not? Now, if you're a value investor like I am, it's not a risk because I don't need my money tomorrow or in five years. It's an opportunity. It's a risk if you're levered or have no cash. Other than that, it's a pothole that's not going to total your car if you're a value investor. It's a detour. I've explained it this way in my letters to our investors, which is I know I'm going from here to there. Let's call it 10% a year over rolling seven-year period. That's my goal. But sometimes I got to take a detour. Sometimes I have to go backwards because there's this huge accident in front of me. And in 08, it was the credit markets. Last year, it was COVID. Could it be the popping of the meme stocks? It could be. And you don't know until it happens. I barely watch, with all due respect to CNBC, I can barely watch it anymore. I, it's not doing me a service listening to pontifications about Bitcoin or GameStop or AMC. So it's not doing anyone a service. But I understand they're in the entertainment business, so that's what they're going to do. But noise reduction is a huge part of my life. Like, just get rid of it, Bruce. It's a distraction. It doesn't matter. Just go value your businesses. If I can find 20 to 25 to 30, that's a lot. That's plenty. That's it. So Bruce, in all the years that I've known you, and particularly since I've started reading your still like letters, something that amazes me is how much you read. You might be the most well-read person I know. You read the volume and the breadth that you read is amazing. I don't even try to keep up with your reading list that comes out every month. And it's funny, you can talk about insecurity. I feel like people read way more than me, like Buffett. Buffett and Munger and the people who really followed, they would say you need to read 500 pages a day. I think Munger would really insist on that. And if you can get up to a thousand. And I think the two guys that Buffett hired, that's what they do. And I would say that they're much more focused in their reading, meaning I think they're reading almost exclusively annual reports. I think they want to read the annual report of every company. So I would kind of aspire to that. I have too many varied interests and there's different ways I like to think. So my reading takes three forms. I'll call it three different genres. Most of it is investing because all day at work, that's what I'm doing. And it's an annual report. It's a quarterly report. I don't read as many research reports as I used to. And I think that's a typical thing for experienced investors. It's cliche to say that the street is transactional and almost everything they write is to generate activity that's not as true as it used to be. But the bottom line is I'm still shocked and it's not to take anything away from sell-side analysts. But for the most part, the breadth of stuff they cover and the way they're supposed to communicate, like when I'll ask them really probing questions or deep about a company, if I can't get a hold of the CEO and I really, they never know the answer. They just don't think about it the way I do. They're way more focused on PE ratios and this and that. And I've sat down with CEOs of banks and other, and, and at the end of the meeting, they're like, wow, you ask questions that nobody else asks. Like people are so much more focused on to the decimal and I'm way more focused on what are the three big things? How are you running this company every day? What are the three big levers you're going to pull? And I got that from being on the boards of some companies back in 08. And I got that from a smart guy who we used as chairman who said that. Like we would come to a board meeting, CEO would have 20, 30 things on a list. And he would sort of create distance between the board and the CEO and say, look, John, there's three big levers you can pull. Figure out what they are and pull them. Tell the board what you're going to And if we succeed in all those, maybe we'll move on to the next three. So I'm way more focused on that when I'm researching. So that it distracts me from reading a little bit. I want to understand the business. You're going to get that from what we call original source documents, which is 10Ks, mostly Ks. Qs, you're not getting a lot. I do like really good business writings, but even then it's been disappointing. Like Barron's used to be 
phenomenal for me. And I feel like it's much more about the sound bite. The stories are just not nearly as deep as they used to be. And everybody I talk to feels the same way. I like Bloomberg news stories. I feel like they've got the best journalists, but then Bloomberg is a filter for me. It's worth every penny of the subscription price because they pull the best stories that are the most read, et cetera, et cetera. So I do that all day and I'll usually read an investment book or listen to a podcast to hear how other investors think. But away from that, I like to read personal brain stuff. So I, I read a book this year called Buddha's Brain, which I thought was phenomenal. And I recommend it to anybody I could get to and sent it to some people. So helpful in terms of creating distance from your own sort of thinking and creating space in there and stepping away from it, which I think is so important. And then I love to read good novels that really just help me escape from all of that and get into someone else's world. I would love to just turn to some closing questions. This has been a great conversation. So first, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family, other than reading, which we know you do? <laughs> I guess I would say my favorite is exercise, believe it or not. And in, like everyone else, I don't love going to the gym every morning because when I force myself to do it and I do it. And like I said, I try to do something every day. The day is just so much better. I think if I was going to be really honest with myself, exercise is probably my favorite activity. I'm not killing it in there. 30 to 60 minutes, sort of like I got through college taking the gentleman's bee. <laughs> but enough to feel flexible, good. I love that. And, and my second, which is sort of tangential, is just sort of outdoor experiences. And I phrase it that way because I'm not you're not going to see me hiking Kilimanjaro or anything like that, but I go for an hour walk. I love that. If my son's got a baseball game, I love sitting outside and watching that. I've got a 12-year-old, 26-foot boat and just getting on it and trying to find nooks and crannies and getting the wind or salt air in my face. I don't do it extremely often, but I call those outdoor experiences. It's pretty simple. How about what's your most important daily habit besides going to the gym every morning? Even more so than what I enjoy the most, that is my most important daily habit by a mile because it sets the table. And the days where I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to work out first thing. I'll get to it later. Those are always worst days. Going for long walks is an important habit. I love it. And I love doing conference calls on long walks. It's like a walking conversation. So those are probably two of my most important habits. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? How do I say this without using a bad word? People who are full of it and including myself, people who are bullshitting themselves, me, I'm like, have we not had this conversation before? It's just not true. And I tell, again, college kids who are coming out, they're like, what's the most important thing? I'm like, authenticity. Be yourself. That's all anyone wants. It's all I ever wanted from any analyst who ever worked for me. It's all I ever wanted from myself. If you know the answer, great. If you don't, just say, I don't know it. Don't make it up. Whatever the opposite of truth is, that's my biggest pet peeve. And what's your biggest investment pet peeve? Which those kind of go, somebody not telling the truth when you're asking an analyst for their advice and opinion kind of goes hand in hand. I would say if I own something and an activist comes in and the activist thinks he knows better than management, that irritates me. I mean, I've seen so many, whether they're private equity guys or guys that literally destroy companies because they really don't know what they're doing. And I don't think financial engineering, like I'm not big on gimmickry. Okay, you guys should raise a bond and split this off and do this. Those are all pet peeves of mine. They all get in the way of compounding. They get in the way of finding, I think you and I have had this conversation once before, do you want the jockey or the horse? But you really want both. And if you have the jockey, like don't go in and start whispering stuff in his ear that you think you know better. If the jockey asks, that's fine. I'm having that experience now. There's two large investors. They're actually trying to take over a company. 
management's in bed with them. I just find the whole thing a little tawdry, like this shouldn't be happening this way. And I'm not going to maximize my return because of what's happening. In fact, in this case, I'm going to end up with a large short-term capital gain because of what it's part of the game, but that would probably be my pet peeve. All right. I'm a little nervous to ask this next one. Maybe I should be more nervous for you than me. <laughs> what is your favorite book? So I'll cheat on that question because people ask me and I say, well, I'll tell you my favorite book read in the last 12 months because I have so many favorite books over the years. There'd be no way to pick one. And I'll actually give you three because as I said before, I, there's three different kinds of genres. So for investing, I would say Richer, Wiser, Happier by William Green was the most recent investment book that literally made me come out of my shoes. I loved it. I probably sent out 30 copies. In addition to, I sent it to an entire class at Sacred Heart. I sent it to my daughter who's graduating. I sent it to my other daughter who graduated years ago. I think it's phenomenal. It struck a huge chord with me. Buddha's Brain by Rick Hansen in sort of that Zen mode of stuff that I try to read that gets you to slow yourself down, I would highly recommend. And then for escape books, almost anything by Lily King, Father of the Rain, Pleasing Hour, The English Teacher. I find her writing just awesome. They're like classics. I stumbled upon her. I never really had heard of her. There were other authors over the years that did it for me, but in the last 12 months, those are the three. All right. What's the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it? I wouldn't say this was a the biggest investment mistake. I don't tend to make really big ones. And I don't mean that in a overconfident or cocky way. I've, I've lost plenty of money. But to me, I would say denture car, don't total it. So I'd never done that investing wise. Back in 2008, we had raised a one-turn lever credit hedge fund. And we were extremely busy at the time. We had just raised a bunch of CLOs. And I had a partner at the time, a co-portfolio manager. And we had negotiated all of our loan agreements, credit agreements for the CLOs together. And so when we were raising the hedge fund, I said, you know what, why don't you go negotiate our total return swap agreement and I'll go deal with the investors. I'll raise the money. And we said, fine. And then sure enough, the 2008 crisis hits, we're getting margin calls and not only margin calls, we're basically having to post three times the capital that I thought we were going to have to pull their head risk guy in. My partner was on the road at the time. I'm like, what is going on? And I call him. I'm like, do you understand how this works? And he didn't. He hadn't. It wasn't what he explained to me. He goes, I need you to get a margin. I didn't realize you'd have to post another. Because what happens with loans at that time, if the loan fell to 90 from 100, you have to post those 10 points. But at 90, you also don't get the same advance rate. And loans were falling. And so I realized we're not going to outrun this. That was the biggest mistake. And the lesson learned was, there's no detail too small. And I hate to say this because it's a terrible way to think, but to have a partner, it's great to have a partner. It's one of the reasons I'm working alone now. It's great to have a partner to talk things through and bounce things off of, but you got to look at everything, which is frustrating to me and from that experience. So we almost lost control of that entire fund. None of that should have happened the way it happened. And all of it happened because A, I trusted and I didn't verify. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I was 17 when my dad passed away, but we were very close. He coached me in Little League, et cetera. And if my mom would get mad at me or disappointed because my grades weren't good enough, the lecture I always got from my dad was he didn't really care. The only time he got really mad is if I misbehaved, which was not infrequently. And so to see my dad get really mad would be because I was being disrespectful in class or talking back or, or just not behaving. And so what I learned from my dad was like, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how much money, I don't care what you do. 
just be a good person. Be somebody, not that I can be proud of, somebody you can be proud of that behave well. From my mother, what I learned, this will sound a little harsher, but it was more, you better find your own way. Now, again, my father was sick when I was born. He had cancer, but then he was fine for 17 years. I think it spooked them both enough. And she had said to me on more than one occasion, look, there's no money here. There's not going to be any money here that you're going to inherit or get during your lifetime. I worked from a very early age. And again, I said money was a big part of our thing. So I think what I learned from my mom was like, there's no beanbag here. Like, stand up and go figure it out. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Sort of along the lines of what my father said, you catch bees with honey and words matter. And I'm still working on that. I have two daughters now that have graduated. I try to give them advice. But clearly, when I say stuff, my words land not how I intended them. And I can tell that from their reaction. I can tell when they go back to my wife and it comes back to me. And I'm sure I do that with friends. I'm sure I did that with people who worked for me. And so I'm aware of it. And I wish I'd learned earlier on. And again, I probably would have had my dad lived a few more years, especially as I started working. You know, it's funny. I remember on a conference call early on, the CFO calling me afterwards, big chemical company, many years ago. And he said, Bruce, you know, your questions on conference calls are not working for us. <laughs> I said, what does that mean? He goes, I know what you're getting at. He goes, first of all, you have access to us. You talk to us. You're a private investor. So it's not like we would, but I can tell by the way you're asking the questions that you're trying to get us to say something in front of all these people. You're trying to, you're trying to imply something. And, and he was right. And he totally called me out on it. And so there was a big level of not just maturity, but just a different way of thinking. And again, I learned a lot of that at Angela Gordon, and you learn a lot about that from Buffett, but you have to work with a person. Like I read it from Buffett, but I think you really have to work with people and see them in action, see them under pressure to recognize that there's a way to handle yourself. There's a way to do things. Nice guys can and do finish first, but soften the edges. And I love that after reading these, you actually offered another question. So I'm going to go ahead and ask it. What life lesson have you not yet learned or solved that you're still working on? It's a similar riff probably off of the previous question. And I would phrase it as not overwatering the plant. And this is why I've been reading these Zen and Buddha books. And I don't mean the actual plant. If somebody comes to me for advice, if it's my daughter, if it's a friend, I can get on a tear and talk for a couple of hours and I can follow up the next day and the next night and again the next day to the point where I'm not giving it enough space. I can make the excuse and say, I'm just really fired up about it. I know I'm right on this. They're not seeing it. They got to get it. But the life lesson, I think, and I know this, I just got to practice it more, which is just give it some space, dude. Back off. Like, let your words land and let them sit. You can't force somebody, and I don't mean literally force them, but you, you can't make somebody see the light by continuing to show the light in their face because you don't think they're seeing it yet. So I'm trying to figure out the best way to do that. And I'm reading a, there's a very intense book now. And it's similar in that Zen book. It's taken me much longer to read. It's much harder. But the premise is almost like do nothing. And I said this to my wife and she's like, what? I'm like, it's sort of like trust and awareness and do nothing and be aware of what's coming up. You don't have to react to every single thing. Again, I'm learning it. I know it. It's going to take more work. But and you've seen it in my letters, right? You've seen me say things like do less. And I don't just mean it in investing. I mean it in everything. It's good. You need stuff in life to always work on. 
I think Munger says about Buffett, the reason he's great isn't just because he's really smart, but he said he's a learning machine. He's never stopped learning. How does a guy at his age make such a huge investment in Apple so late after the fact and still make a huge fortune on it? If you never stop learning, I think it's great for your brain. I think it's great for your relationships. It's great for your mental health, physical, all of it. So I'm already overwatering this plant. This has been great, Bruce. Thank you so much for spending the time. Sure. Thanks for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. Thank you.